0: You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey, guys, welcome to The Devoted Podcast. So when we first started the podcast back in May, I did an episode called Kitchen Table Apologetics. Probably a super nerdy title, but that's what we call it in our house. And um, I just think conversations like this are really important. I heard from a lot of you guys that you really enjoyed this. And so we just thought that we would throw another one of these your way. So I have asked my husband, Chris, to join me again. He's sitting here next to me. And we just, for us, these are fun because, like I said, this is just an extension of what these same conversations look like in our house. So when we talk about these things, we are inviting our boys along in this to help them learn what really are just important pieces of the faith as, for us as Christians. But these conversations take a whole broad net sometimes. But like we said before, this isn't something just for parents. This is something for all of us as Christians. I have been told by lots of people in the last couple months, whether they've been confronted by a friend or a family member that's just kind of walking away from the God of the Bible, having questions about the Bible, or just completely walking away from Jesus altogether. And so I know lots of you guys are facing this even if it's not in the scope of just talking to your kids about it. So, but I think it's particularly important to be helping our kids with these conversations. And I love that they can hear these questions and um, start talking about this stuff with you as a parent first, because I think that helps us to be able to just formulate what those arguments for the faith look like. So just a little of refresher on what is apologetics This is just a big word for reasoned arguments for something. And for Chris and I, we take a pretty broad look at that because there is so much scripture that tells us about why we believe what we believe. And I also know that there's lots of really smart people out there that take a very philosophical and logic-based approach to apologetics. And that's awesome, too. I'm not that smart, folks. But I love that the Word of God, it stands up to any scrutiny. So for our purposes, we look at this as a way to sharpen us as believers. We look at this as sharpening our kids, our friends, with just knowing what the Bible says. So... Because the basis of our conversation is always the Bible, Chris, do you want to recap just a little bit what we did in the first one where we talked about the veracity of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture?
1: Yeah, that was an important one to tee things off because the Bible forms the basis of every argument that we're going to make in the realm of kitchen table apologetics. So if we can't rely on the Bible being true, then we really can't talk about anything else. And so that was the first thing that we wanted to touch on was how you can know that the Bible is 100% reliable and inspired by God.
0: For real, we gave like a really elementary, very cursory discussion of that. I mean, there are people that have written whole books on that and scholars that have researched that to the nth degree and there are awesome resources out there for that. We gave a very elementary approach to that. But you got to put that out there, because if we're going to have conversations like this and we're going to continue to say, this is where the Bible says this, and where do we find that in the Bible, you have to have that basic understanding first of, yes, we can 100% rely on the scriptures that we hold, that we read, that we're using just for these ideas and this this argument for our faith. So today, the thing we want to jump into is we want to talk about what is the gospel, I should clarify a little bit. I, I think I tricked one of my kids a little bit when I said that to them and I said, what is the gospel? And, and they were like the first four books of the New Testament. So not exactly what I'm talking about, but what is the gospel message really? That may sound really elementary to some. If you have been a believer for a really long time, you may be thinking, well, of course we know what the gospel is. And I think I would have fallen in that camp a bit as well. We recently had a conversation with a friend of ours who uh, teaches at a college, a Christian college, that was teaching a course on evangelism. And he was telling us how really surprised he even was about how many students came into, in fact, he said most of his students that came into his class, Christian university guys, when they were asked, asked, what is the gospel message? Can you tell me what the gospel message is? They couldn't do it, folks. And that kind of hit me that, boy, is this something that my kids can do well? Is this something that I can do well? Can I point to the scriptures effectively on what the gospel is? Because have we ever been in a day where we don't feel the need for the gospel? I just can't imagine being more necessary than it is right now. And I feel that urgency, I think, right now. So I just decided to tack on to this in order to really offer some clarity on that.
1: Before you are too shocked and horrified by that story, I would challenge you right now. Can you articulate the essential elements of the gospel? I mean, it's something that as believers, we hear all the time. But the difference between knowing those things in your head and having that be able to make the six-inch journey out your mouth is actually two very different things. And it's one of those things that if you don't practice it a little bit, when it comes time, it actually can be a little bit difficult.
0: And even this, for you guys, if you're a parent listening to this, if you're trying to teach your kids this, well, of course, it's you got to know it to teach it. It's one of those things that is you may think that you do. And it may even depend a little bit on your age demographic. Okay. This is kind of embarrassing here, probably, and tell you guys the age that I'm in or maybe where I'm from. But I grew up with my granddad was all about like the gospel tracks. I mean, he had tracks in everything. And if you're listening to this and going, I don't even know what a track is. Are you talking about like the thing you run on? Oh, no. These were like pretty cheesy. I don't know. How would you describe these, Chris?
1: So when I first met Amy's grandfather he gave me one of these i think maybe he was a little concerned that maybe i wasn't a believer or i wanted
0: to make sure you knew the gospel i think he
1: wanted to know and so yeah it's like a little like pamphlet really like three four page pamphlet that will walk you through a variety of different topics probably the most common of which is the gospel message
0: And to tell you guys just how far he would take this, literally kept stacks and stacks, boxes and boxes of these. And whenever he would pay his bills, they would write the check for the bill and they'd stick a track in there. Oh, yeah. So, tracks were a big deal growing up. I knew what the, I just had seen all these little cheesy comics and stuff that were written to try to explain the gospel message. Now, I don't want to downplay that because At the same time, those were used in a very valuable tool in the 70s and in different times during the church's history. And I think there has been a lot of good that's come from that. And perhaps even then, it might have been a little bit easier for some of those people and those Christians and kids and all that to be able to answer that question, what is the gospel message? Because they might have seen it in a little track somewhere that might have have registered to them. So that's kind of why we wanted to do this, because I was just, it just hit me funny that there would be Christians that have been in the church for years and years and years and perhaps can't really articulate what the gospel message is effectively. So for any believer, but also especially for a mom or a dad, that's something that this is a good conversation with your kids.
1: So in thinking through what are the essential elements of the gospel? It was interesting as we were preparing for this and asking our kids some questions and reading a few things. The element that I think gets left out most often or glossed over or minimized is the element of sin. Yes. Man's sin and the concept of hell. And I think that that is very indicative of the place that we are in Christianity in this country and in this world, as well as just in general man's state today. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to acknowledge that it exists or that it's real or that it's a problem. But you cannot have the gospel message without the concept of sin.
0: And you have to be so aware of how tricky the enemy is being with this right now. Because if he can convince you that... The sins that you're doing, the sins that I'm doing, aren't that big a deal. Or even in some Christian circles, we even see a, very much a redefinition of what is sin and just basically taking things that the Bible calls sin and us saying, nope, that's not going to be sin to me. But when you have that happening, boy, that's a win for the enemy, because if he can convince you that your sin's not really that bad, that these passages that we're going to look at some central ones about that all have sin, that the wages of sin is death, we're going to read those if he can convince you that that's just really, like your sin's not really that bad, man, he's right there, huge victory for him because then he's able to also make you feel like you don't need the solution so badly. And so I think that is a little bit why this gospel message feels like it's getting diluted a little bit because we first haven't really acknowledged the fact of our sin in the first place.
1: So as we think about how can we in a really succinct way communicate the essential elements of the gospel, especially if you're going to talk to your kids about this, I kind of challenged myself to say, okay, let me write out some thoughts about this. And then I just kind of kept paring it down. I kept crossing things out. I kept rewriting things with the goal of trying to get it as brief as possible. And we think that there are four essential elements of the gospel, and that you can communicate those four things in as little as eight words. Now, there's obviously way more that we could say about it and should say about it and will say about it. But in terms of a place to start, we think you could do it in eight words. So, you ready? Here we go. Four essential elements. Number one, God's love. Number two, our sin number three jesus's act and number four our choice
0: so we're going to keep saying those several times so it's not like you're most of you guys are probably folding laundry or driving right now so you're not writing any of this stuff down but we'll keep coming back to those things but those like you said those are just like the first four succinct ones but i also want to point you guys to some scriptures that talk about these things as well so the first one there god is love god's love talk about that one And when I
1: think about these things like tomorrow or next week, when you're trying to recall these things, the easy way I think is to just think about your knowledge of human history or the Bible. It all goes back to really creation, right? And the garden and this cool picture of the love between God and Adam and Eve. And, the picture I have in my head is, is God creates the animals and then he brings them to Adam to see what he would name them. The picture there is a fatherly picture that I have in my head with my boys and how I would do things with them. And I'd, I'd show them something just to see what they would do, just to see how they would react. And that's kind of the picture I have that God was doing with Adam. So God loves us. And ultimately, just like that picture in the garden, he created us to have a close love relationship with him. And I would point to Genesis one, twenty-seven to thirty-one, where where it talks about God having that type of relationship with Adam.
0: I love the picture of going back to creation for things because and we read that creation account so often that I think we lose some of those little nuances sometimes because we've just read it so many times. But that is kind of a neat picture, if you think about it, of how God was relating to Adam there in the garden. And it is a endearing picture, really. And it does show that love and relationship. Now, we get to see the love Eventually, when we get to number three, when we talk about Jesus's act, obviously, that's going to be the ultimate piece of love that we see. But I love that we can go all the way back to creation and see how that looked.
1: Now, unfortunately, at least in my Bible, man made it less than a page. And we get to the number two thing of our sin. Maybe you've heard before, any notion of love requires choice. Because if I do not give the other party a choice, then there really can't be love. Now I'm coercing or forcing. And so God, in his love, had to give Adam and Eve a choice. Am I going to continue in this love relationship with God, or am I going to reject that and go against what he told them? And as we all know, that's exactly what happened. And more broadly, everyone has sinned, no matter how good or bad you are, no matter what you do for a living, whether you are Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Adolf Hitler, everyone has sinned, and it is our sin that separates us from God
0: again, I'll just kind of echo some of the stuff we said at the beginning about our sin. I think it's easy for us to downplay that and think, hey, I'm not a murderer, and I'm not a child trafficker. So I'm really not that bad. I confess, I get that in my own head of like, oh, well, is this sin that bad? But you have to remember, just like we got back at the very beginning, when we were talking about that, the word of God is true in every facet. So if it says in Romans, that all have sinned, Okay, you can put my name in there. You can put your name in there. We have sinned, and then it also tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. In our culture, in our thinking, man, that sounds so harsh. That sounds like that shouldn't be. But the reason we struggle with that, I think, and Chris, maybe you can chime in on this too, is I think it's because we have such a difficult time really grasping the concept of the holiness of God. He can't be With sin. He can't have relationship with something that is of of a sinful nature. There has to be a payment for that. And so I even think that the word that it uses as the wages of sin is death. That there's a debt there that has to be paid. It's just something that we need to let that sit just a little bit. Don't read those passages in Romans and go, man, I've I've heard these a million times without them really letting them sit there and, and put your name in there. I need to put my name in there and realize that is talking to me. My sin is worthy of death. I think that's a really important thing to do.
1: Absolutely. Like you said there, our sin separates us from God, and, and it's pictured perfectly in the garden. Because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God had to separate them from himself in a way that he never intended to happen, and certainly in a way he didn't want to happen. But suddenly, Adam and Eve found themselves outside of the blessing of this utopia that God had created for them, and death entered the picture. Death, I think, presently for them, and we read about the elements of the curse that came into being, and and really in that moment, all of creation switched modes from life to death, but then also death eternally, right? And so when we think about our sin, not only does it separate us from God presently on earth, but then for those who die in that sin without coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus, there is death eternally in hell. And oh my goodness, talk about a topic that nobody wants to deal with. But it is the reality. It's what the Bible tells us.
0: Those aren't the fun passages, right? And so often we either want to not read those ones and that's why hell is just not a popular topic, but hell's a real deal. And the thing that I think is, again, it's just a deception of the enemy Because if you don't really believe in hell, you don't really believe that there is a debt to be paid for your sin, then you're more likely to just go on your merry way and not really give this whole idea of the gospel much thinking. But if you have heard these last couple minutes and you kind of sit there and you think about that and you go, wow, oh, that's a lot. Well, then the urgency, the need that we have for the gospel should become really, really clear in our minds.
1: So let's just talk about a couple of the passages that deal with this, because I think that's important. And, and many of these are ones that are very well-known. You already mentioned Romans 6.23. Uh, but let's let's start at Isaiah 59, classic passage here, verse 1 and 2, which says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities, or you could read sin, Have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. I think another one that specifically kind of talks about the scary topic of hell is found right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 20, verse 15, which says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire.
0: So see, haven't we thrown all of these super feel-good passages at you? But the thing again is is like we talked about in the first apologetics when we did, all scripture is true. So you can't just take the verses that you just really like to hang on to and then pretend some of these other ones don't exist. Whether we like them, whether that they make us feel good or not, guys, they're equally true. So you can't yourself your own intellect above god we have to be submitted to the words of scripture here and so those are some big scary passages there so we want to really take them seriously and when
1: it comes to communicating the gospel message to someone you're doing it a disservice if you sort of skip over or gloss over this part because the reality is the lord has put inside of us a conscience He has given us something that knows we are sinful. Now, the world puts all kinds of coverings over that and layers to anesthetize our mind from the realities of it, but deep down inside of every human being, they know they are sinful. And if you don't address that when you're communicating the gospel message to a non-believer, you are missing out on that black backdrop upon which the amazing message of who Jesus is and what he did brings that stark contrast.
0: It's like how our pastor likes to give the analogy or the picture of if you go and you buy a diamond from a jeweler, they always put it against this lovely black piece of velvet. But it's something dark. It's 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 black because the diamond, and we can just look at that as that's the good part, right? It shines so much more clearly when it is contrasted against the dark of that black backdrop. And so while no, I'm not suggesting that you want to sit someone down and just scare them to death. That's not what we're saying. But at the same time, You just can't ignore that part. And culturally, sadly, that's really what we've done. We've kind of ignored the part that there is sin and that there really is a problem we got to deal with. But like Chris said, that is something that we know that our kids, when they were little and they had done something they were not supposed to do and they were going to have discipline for it. I remember at times we would, as parents, it's never super fun to discipline. So you're not loving that opportunity. But the interesting thing for us, especially when I think of our first and your new parents, you have zero idea what you're doing. But what was so cool was to see the process that our kids went through when they were disciplined. And then we'd always pray with them at the end. And you could just almost see that reconciliation that they needed. They needed it between Chris and I for disobeying or whatever the issue had been, but they needed it between them and the Lord as well. And modeling that type of behavior for the kids, showing them, praying with them, even really before they understood necessarily what that meant. But if you're a parent, you've probably seen this in your kids. If you've done this and you, you've walked them through when they have done something wrong and there has been consequences for it, and then you bring them back in and you pray with them, there is a joy that's there. After that interaction that you've had with them. So we know when we're at the littlest age possible, we know that there's sin in us. If we're honest with ourselves, we try not to be sometimes, but we know it's there.
1: So we talked about God's love, number one, our sin, number two. And I love how those two things, they flow logically, right? We talked about how in order for there to be true love, there has to be freedom of choice. Right? God had to give Adam and Eve the freedom to choose to follow him or to disobey him. And just like our sin naturally follows God's love, Jesus' act, number three, follows very naturally from our sin because if you take away the aspect of sin, then Jesus' death on the cross seems pointless. But it's clear in the Bible that there is the requirement for blood as a sacrifice for sin. And so naturally coming out of our sin is the need for atonement, the need for sacrifice to cover over our sin. And so Jesus' act is then the third essential element of the gospel, and really It starts, again, with God's love for humanity being so great that he desired that close love relationship with us and therefore sent his son, Jesus, to the earth to make it possible for us to be close with God once again.
0: And I love how... Romans 5, 8, it speaks to God's love that was in the first one, but then also Jesus's act, because in in Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. After you had done talking about the sin and the issues that we have, that we need to be honest that, yes, there is sin, reflecting back to that first part of the love that God has for us, that is then represented in what Jesus's act was for us of dying on the cross for that sin, the blood atonement that was necessary. Again, I know you could be saying things to a friend or to your your kids even that they're like, well, that just sounds weird. And why is blood necessary? Whether we want to get on board with if it makes sense in our minds or not doesn't necessarily that doesn't change whether it's true or not. And when it comes to this message of the gospel and you're literally talking about your eternal soul. It's not something you want to get wrong.
1: I think another classic passage for this step, for this essential element is probably the most famous passage in all of the Bible and one that everyone's heard and probably seen at football games and basketball games, John 3, 16, which clearly shows us God, the father's role in the plan of salvation and Jesus the Son's role in the plan of salvation. And I think it's important to kind of carry this forward and say Jesus willingly came to earth as a man and lived a perfect, sinless life, which qualified him then to be a sacrifice for our sin, died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin that Romans talked about rose from the dead three days later, and now is the only way for us to be saved from hell and made right with God. There's a lot of doctrine tied up in those couple of sentences there, but the essential element here is Jesus's act. We'll go back to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Okay, so now let's let's pull a passage that deals with the resurrection and we'll look at Matthew 28 verses five and six. So this is there in the garden at the tomb, and the angel, says to Mary and Mary, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples.
0: Boy, the resurrection sure is one that's a whole episode in and of itself, because there is so much evidence from an apologetic standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, but then also outside biblical contexts as well, proving the resurrection. Because Paul will talk about that in his letters that if we don't have the resurrection, we've got nothing. But Jesus actually, he rose from the grave. He did exactly what he said he was going to do, which is no one else can say that. That is the element that's missing is you have to have the resurrection.
1: Yeah. And I think that's an important thing. You know, we said in there that Because Jesus rose from the dead, conquered the grave, conquered our sin, he is the only way for us to be saved from hell and made right with God. And I think a passage that we could point to there would be John 14, verse 6, where it says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.
0: And man, do I love the simplicity of that one, because this is one, particularly in our culture, that people just don't want to grasp onto because they want there to be all kinds of whatever is your truth, whatever is my truth. It's all good. You find your own truth. That completely contradicts itself. You cannot have that. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And yet they still say it and it makes it sound super smart. And so then people just nod their heads and go along with it. Why? Because it feels good. We have appealed to our feeling and our emotion of what we want for that. But that is not true. It doesn't matter how badly we want that to be or how much better that might feel to you, it's not true. And so I love the simplicity of John 14 telling us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, period. It should clear out all the questions of what we think might be a better option. Nope, it's not a better option.
1: Yeah, and it is true that Jesus is the only way. There's not multiple paths. There's not multiple options. And that's another way in which the world tries to spin out from underneath the message of the gospel by making it possible for lots of people to find lots of different ways to encounter their own truth and discover the, the hero within or whatever. But ultimately, the Bible is crystal clear here. There is only one way.
0: So far, we've done God's love, our sin, Jesus's act, and the last one is our choice.
1: Yeah, and again, I love the way that this flows, because when you have the level of sacrifice that Jesus, God in the flesh, made on behalf of humanity, it forces a moment of decision. What will you do with Jesus Christ? You can't be neutral. You can't sit on the fence. You have to either say, I accept what he did on the cross as a sacrifice for me and my sin, or I reject that. There is no middle ground. And so we have a choice. Every human being, the Bible is clear, everyone is without excuse when it comes to making a decision about Jesus. So, what is that choice? How does someone make that choice what does the bible say is required from someone who wants to be saved who wants to make that choice and at athe romans 10 9 and 10 gets quoted almost every single service which i love because it puts it so simply so succinctly but i think it's worth reading again so so here's romans 10 9 and 10 which says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved.
0: And if you are someone that's trying to break this down for somebody younger, one of your kids or something like that, boy, if you can just break that verse down, you've got the gospel that verse is the gospel message as we have been discussing this like i told you we we cast a pretty wide net over we what we consider apologetics discussions just arguments for something in this case that's where those four things fall in with kind of explaining and pointing to the scriptures on why what does the bible say about the gospel what does the god what does the bible say about our sin and so we feel like those are good conversations as well and and is just good for us as christians to know but that verse right there, that one is huge. If you don't have that one memorized, memorize that. If you're teaching your kids, have them <laughs> memorize that verse. And even I would go so far as whether it's a friend or a family member, if there's a way you can tuck that verse in there and let that be just a little bit of a pebble in their shoe, even if they're not ready to fully accept that. But let, let the Lord work on them. That verse has all, just breaks it all down right there.
1: And I love what Paul talks about here. So if you kind of break it down and think about this, first of all, there are two actions, I guess you could say, on the part of the professing Christian. One is an outward act, and the other is an inward act, right? One is belief. It's faith. That's not something you can see. It's not something you can touch. It's a deeply spiritual and personal act. But then the other one is outward. It's confession with the mouth. And then I think it's cool what the things are that he associates with those two acts. So what is it that we're supposed to confess with our mouth? It's that Jesus is Lord. Not he was a good teacher. Not he was an important historical figure. But Jesus is Lord, a declaration of his lordship. Not only in history, his role, that he wasn't just a man, but that he was God, but also personally, he is the one in charge of my life. And I am declaring that with my mouth. And then belief in the heart, what is the belief that we have to have? Man, it's the thing that gets challenged all the time by the secular world, which is the resurrection. I mean, you go back to the the Gospels, and I mean, it's the thing that was so scandalous, and it's the thing that the apostles spent the entire book of Acts giving their lives to say, this really did happen. So the element of faith here, you got to believe in the resurrection. That's gotta be
0: there. So what does this look like practically for you guys? Okay, so that we've given four things and maybe that you're like, yeah, I've already forgotten those four things. All good. But God's love, our sin, Jesus's act, our choice. But then again, we wanna be making sure that we understand what these things mean. And so that's why we've, this last half hour, we've been going through some of those verses so that you can kind of internalize and really look some of those scriptures up and really do your own study on this. So you are able to articulate the gospel really well. So I think that's really important. But we want to give just a little example, if you are a parent and talking to kids about this on maybe how that conversation can go just a little bit.
1: Yeah. So in my way, when you're talking to kids, you're oftentimes going to get a wide range of answers. And depending on how much of a talker they are, they might ramble on and on and on, or you might get precious few words. But what I would like to think of is when, when I'm talking to my kids, I really want to hear come out of their mouth. When it comes time to talk about the gospel message, what's the bad news and what's the good news? What's the bad news? The bad news is sin and hell means eternal death for those who reject Jesus.
0: And just even giving them that reminder, that concept, you're a sinner. Mom and dad, we're sinners. But let that word even be a normal word. Like I said, it's just so not discussed. We really want to just ignore the entire concept of sin in our culture. We do not want to be raising kids that don't have a healthy understanding that they're sinners.
1: So that's the bad news. What's the good news? Well, the good news is Jesus's death and resurrection means eternal life for those who believe.
0: And that is an easy one, right? But you need that. We need both pieces so much. You have to see your need. You have to see that there is sin, that we are sinners, that there is an actual consequence, an actual place called hell. And then so quickly we get to follow it up because Jesus is so good to be able to give us the good news right after that. And we want to follow that up with our kids too, so that they see that there's both. I love that even in the way our responses can be, there's good news, but there's bad news. We get to show that the good is so good. He is a good God who does good. And I think that that is something that is permeated in the gospel. We're reminded over and over as we talk to people about the gospel that he is good. He is a good God.
1: So I challenge you guys at your kitchen table. The next time you're sitting around there as a family, throw it out and just say, Hey, everybody, let's see if we can name the four essential elements of the gospel message. Let your kids throw out their ideas. And as they have them, if you want to be a nerd, grab a whiteboard or grab a piece of paper or whatever, write them down. And eventually, I bet you as a family... You guys will be able to get to all four of them. But being able to kind of succinctly put it up there for them to see, to understand God's love, our sin, Jesus's act, our choice, and then really you can kind of expound on that by saying, hey, everybody, what's the bad news and what's the good news? I think it's a great way to equip your kids and really yourself to be able to give a reason for the hope that you have within you.
0: So in case you caught that little reference to the whiteboard, we may or may not have done that. <laughs> don't tell them about that. We we are that level of nerd, folks. We really are. <laughs> the one thing that I would give you to with whoever you're talking to, a friend, a family member, your kids. I always try to check myself with this. Of I don't ever want to be asking my kids a question and give them the feeling like, if you don't know this... Then you're doing something wrong or I can't believe you don't know this. You've been a Christian for so long or you've been going to church or what. We just want to really always check our tone, our heart with that. And as parents, guys, this can be a little bit tricky because you might in your mind be thinking, yeah, my kids really should know this. What in the world? But check that before, because I know Chris and I caught ourselves with that, too, because we were like, man, we really feel like our kids need to know this. But there's a wide range of ages and different things that might be appropriate at different ages. I would also say this is probably not a one-time conversation. This is a good thing to talk about often, because just to bring us back into why we want to do this personally. We need this. We need these reminders. It's just a funny thing with how repetition works. You just, after saying it over and over, you just get used to it. You know it so well. And I don't want to mean repeating things in the way where they, they just don't take their effectiveness as much. But there is just reward to going over something many times so that you it's just really firm in your mind and you understand those concepts. So personally, we need this. I needed this. I needed to do this study and, and go through these things. And these are really good scriptures to go back over. If nothing else, just to enrich your own personal study on how good God is.
1: I think this is a very important and timely topic that we Address and be equipped to communicate our faith because of the times that we're living in in this COVID 19 day and age where man, non believers are terrified of the possibility of death. And it's funny, our pastor will talk about how, as a believer, our death is the very best day on earth for us because it's when we get to enter into the presence of God. But for the non-believer, it is the end of the line. Their death is the entrance into an eternity of torment. And you look around our world, there's so much hopelessness There's so much despair. And I think about 1 Peter 3.15, which says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have.
0: And I love just ending even on that verse right there, guys, because I hope this conversation gives you a good balance of that good and bad news. Because, yeah, we do need to, like we said, we have to acknowledge the bad news. But that verse right there, that's the good news. And what we really want is we want our countenance even as you're going to the grocery store or with your neighbors or with your kids or friends, family members. We want that countenance to be showing the hope that we have. And that hope is found right here in this gospel message. It is truly the only hope that we have. Thank you guys for joining us for another one of these. And we may sprinkle a few more of these out throughout the podcast lineup. If you've got a specific one that you would like us to do, send us an email at devotedpodcast at And we can look at that and maybe do that at a future episode. So thanks for joining us and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to the Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Avey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at apcreek.com.